You're listening to the State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. Follow the show on social media and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Now, here's Jason and Paul. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is... Paul Gillieri. Oh, it has been a... Well, it's been a long time for the show. We're at episode 150. And you believe it. Well, I feel 150 today. I think you do as well, right? <laughs> I look 150 today, but that's that's not why the good listeners are here. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you know what? Anybody who's new, thank you for finding the show. Don't know how you found it. Don't really care how you found it, but thank you for finding the show. Um, quite the backlog for you to check out if you'd like to go back in time. Anybody who's been around for a minute, welcome back. Welcome back. Um, we really appreciate you guys being here. Really appreciate anybody who's fed the algorithm. Maybe that's how you found us. Paul, how do they do that? Well, you feed that bad boy by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to your preferred podcast platform of choice, Jason. Mm, that is exactly how you do it. And uh, anybody who has gone the extra, extra mile and become a patron on Patreon, we really appreciate you guys. Anybody you who's know, bought th- Jason, a t-shirt. Those folks ride the algorithm. They don't just feed it <laughs> like a dragon. I'll <laughs> tell you what. I feel like you have seen the Dungeons and Dragons trailer. Maybe that's on your brain. Is that why you say that? No, no. Well, I have kids, man. How to Train Your Dragon? Nobody's oh, watching. It. <laughs> Hello. Or, 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 or for us adults, we call it Game of Thrones. Mm. See, when you said riding, I immediately thought of Yellowstone because we've been we've been binging that over the past. Don't few ruin weeks. it for me. I'm, I'm like, I haven't watched any of the uh, variations of that show yet, but I'm dying to get into them. It's, it's quite fun, I must say. We just started season five, so we're catching up. We're catching up. Anywho. Appreciate everybody who's on Patreon. Anybody who's bought a shirt, thank you very much. That helps fund this show and keep it on the level. And and yeah, that everything is great. All good things. We appreciate y'all for being here. And what a hell of a show we have for you. Uh, we spoke to uh, our guest uh, just a couple of weeks ago for this episode. Um, his name is Josh Evans. And if you don't know, he produced Gigaton. You could not ask for more serendipitous timing. It, what, it, what better way to celebrate this? Uh... It was perfect. It makes sense. 150th. Uh, what is it? It's it's not your bicentennial, right? That that that's that's what we I haven't reached week? that yet. We're on, we're en route to that. But. Was it quincentennial? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not right. That can't be right. But it sounds good. No, we're we're <laughs> we're <laughs> quincentennial. Oh, really gown. Will Olay. not be oh, our Jesus. song choice of the oh, week. Oh no! All right, enough of us yammering. Uh, here it is. This happened a couple of weeks ago. Here's the interview with Josh Evans. And here he is, the producer of Gigaton, Josh Evans. How's it going, man? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Welcome. It is an absolute privilege to have you on, sir. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. You know, we uh, when we heard you coming on. I said, Paul, I'm going to keep around as much of our favorite beer as possible. So I've got my winter solstice oh, nice. here. <laughs> nice. I don't, you know, you probably don't know this, but Paul and I uh, tend to get 
all of the six packs of this particular beer around the oh, holidays. Nice. And I accidentally bought way too much. And now it's in March and I still have a bunch. So I'm going to drink it because it's good juju. You, you oh, do nice. the math on that one, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should, uh, uh, I should shill for my friends in Thunder Pussy, who I just, they just released a song today called Fire Breather that I produced and mixed and, and recorded with them. And, uh, there's a corresponding beer that they put out called the Fire Breather IPA. Uh, oh, man. So look it up and uh, Fire Breather IPA. I'm there. They go together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I like Perfect. it. Yeah. Well, before we start at the beginning, because we, we like to go chronologically sometimes. All right. Um, I want to start with a compliment. And okay. this comes from a Variety article in which uh, you went track by track with Jonathan Cohen. Yeah. And he said that Gigaton is the veteran Pearl Jam's most satisfying and adventurous work since the Clinton administration. And for that, much of the credit goes to you, sir, Josh oh, wow. Evans. Now, we're three years from that record coming out. Yeah. It's out. It's been out in the wild. People have consumed it in all different kinds of ways. How does that statement live with you now, three years later? Oh, I mean, it's just an honor. I mean, uh, you know, when I was, and we'll get to it, I'm sure. But you know, when you're in the trenches and when you're in it, you know, you, I kind of lose all perspective on how how other people are going to hear it and what it's going to mean to other people, and to um, to hear that uh, the fans appreciated it, and you know, Jonathan Cohen, super fan, you know. Uh, knows what he's talking about. Um, it's just an honor, and and, uh, and it, it's still uh, kind of unbelievable to to you know hear quotes like that. So, yeah. Josh, let's let, let's take a, a trip down memory lane here for okay. a second. You uh, you grew up in Seattle. Yep, in the early nineties, right? Yep, yep. Okay. Uh, so, graduated high school here in Seattle in ninety seven. So, 97. Okay. So I okay. was, you know, 12 and 13 and learning how to play electric guitar when 10 came out, you know. And we're not far off. We're we're, we're a yeah. couple years behind you. So we're all around the yeah. same same thing here. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh late late 90s uh high school grads all around here. Um, right on. so you after after college, you interned at Studio X. Yep. Right around 06, somewhere around the, the avocado time. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I started that, interning there in 2002. So two, um, okay, early. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, so, yeah. But it wasn't until avocado time when I met the PJ guys. Got it. Okay, so before we get into that particular experience, what would you say? Uh, how would you characterize growing up in Seattle during that early 90s wave? Uh, it, it was, it was a, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, a pretty, pretty seismic shift yeah. in the music industry in terms of what was you know, people were gravitating towards. And so what, sure. what, what, when you think back to that shift and what was happening there, what led you to studio X a decade yeah. later? Well, I mean, it, it was interesting just, you know, being a teenager in Seattle in the nineties was interesting because at the time there was this law called the teen dance ordinance. And uh, it basically prevented underage you know, minors, anyone under 21 from almost seeing any, you know, live music that wasn't, you know, kids music, basically. Really? Yeah. So you couldn't, you know, there were almost no underage venues. Um, you know, now there's a venue called the Vera Project that kind of came out of that time. Um, you know, so, so the only way to kind of see shows, you know, so all this was going on in Seattle and Nirvana and Mudhoney and Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice, you know, everything and all the other bands, uh, you know, there was like a Bumbershoot music festival, you know, once a year you could kind of go and see some bands or they would do these pain in the grass free concerts at, at you know, Seattle center at the mural amphitheater where mm -hmm. you can see some old videos of Pearl Jam playing there. Oh yeah. Um, or you had to like sneak into shows. So it was, just, it was kind of weird because it was like, there was all this energy and excitement in town, but you know, if you were 
13, 14, 15, you kind of had to, to scramble and, uh, you know, or like, I remember there was a show called bomb shelter videos on the, you know, basically public access, you know, where, where you could watch like local videos, you know, at, at, you know, 1am on a Friday night, you know? And so, you know, or KXP, uh, the radio station here, which at the time was called KCMU, you know, would play a lot. So you kind of had to, you know, I, I mean, we sound old, but, you know, kids these days, it's so easy. You can just find, you know, music wherever you want, but you know, hey, I'd Siri, have to, where is the music? Yeah, exactly. You know, I'd have to, you'd have to really want it and, and, uh, you know, or, you know, go to record stores and, 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 you know, pre Napster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, gamble on a tape and, and hope it had a song you liked, you know, so, um, so that, that was an interesting time, you know, so, and, you know, one of my, one of my first concerts, uh, was going to see Pearl Jam, their free concert at, you know, drop in the park, you know, and shut the front door. Oh, you were there for that. Yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. 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 So, you know, and I, I saw them at Mercer arena. So I saw them when I was, you know, 13, 14, 16 years old. Uh, so Not it's bad. kind of a trip trip to, you know, yeah. full circle or, you know, wherever things have ended up. Um, and, and in a way, Pearl Jam, you know, I mean, I'm going to sound like a stalker or something. Um, yeah, I mean, I was a fan, you know, uh, but uh, and I remember looking at the Riot Act record and in the center of the, the album was a shot of a studio shot, you know, which was Studio X. And mm -hmm. I remember, you know, same thing, looking at the the credits and going, you know, OK, well, Studio X, where's that? OK. And and I want to I want to go. Well, that's the studio I want to go to. You know, I don't want to start at some small studio. I want to go to, the, you know go to the top and, and, uh, work there. Um, so I went to the university of Washington and studied, uh, I studied some digital art and comparative history of ideas. So I had to fall back on my music to <laughs> pay the bills. But, uh, uh, when I graduated there, uh, so I called studio X and said, Hey, do you need an intern? And they said, Nope. You just cold called <laughs> them. Cold called them. You know, <laughs> I think probably like literally, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, I guess 25 years ago or whatever, but we sound so old. A lot's happened in 25 years, but, you know, I probably yeah, looked yeah. them up in the phone book, you know, and, or, you know, and called What's them. What's a phone and, book for our younger yeah, listeners? Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like Google. White pages, but, yellow pages, blue pages. Right. What the hell are right. blue pages? Right. Yeah. Wait, so, Different. so you, you, you're, you're there, you're in Seattle, you're in the thick of it. You go to drop in the park. You're a fan from day one. Oh, yeah. I mean, so the other story I, I've told before is, you know, I was probably 12 or 13 when 10 came out and uh, got uh, my mom to drive me to Fred Meyer, which is like a little local Target kind of store and was, you know, talked her into buying me 10 on cassette. Yeah. And she was like, I don't know anything about this band, but I'm going to buy you Led Zeppelin one and you know, at least one <laughs> of these good. records. Yeah. You know, so not bad. I think I was two for two. On, on that <laughs> yeah, you were. Probably, and I wore both those tapes out. So, um so yeah so um sorry what were, what, what were i don't you know all, all i was thinking yeah. about when you when you said the, the first was that the first cd you ever got or the first disc you ever got oh i mean no that was a tape or tape. no i mean probably first tape i probably got was like huey lewis or stray cats or or thriller or something you know yeah well, that, that's much yeah. better I was, my, yeah. mine was ace of bass or shack diesel which is very <laughs> Wow. Unimpressive. <laughs> I know. I, I, I tell you right now, my, I, my first three were Thriller. Um, the other one was uh, Aerosmith Pump. And nice. somehow I landed yeah. on Roxette's look because she's got the look. Remember that album? <laughs> oh, right. Wow. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I'm learning so much about you, Paul. Bro broad Horizons. <laughs> right. So, okay. So no now, now we're in the early aughts. Yeah. And you've co-called Studio X, but you yep. said they didn't, they didn't, 
need anybody. But so how did you then finally bang down that door? Because even people who know what they want to do, it's yeah. hard to get their foot in in the door of the place they actually want to go to and not have yeah, to, absolutely. to get to that place. So how do you finally get into Studio X? Well, so I called the next month and said, do you <laughs> yes. need an intern? And they said, nope. And, and I just, you know, had, you know, was, was cool and said, all right, well, can I call you next month? And she's like, Bonnie, who was the studio manager at the time was like, sure. Call next month. And I probably called for five or six, seven months. Wow. And I think, uh, event and every time was like, okay, thanks. You know, I'll try next month. And I think eventually they just, got worn down we're like okay we don't need anybody but just come in um they were gonna pay you anyways yeah yeah exactly yeah and uh so then and and i feel really lucky you know that whole sort of uh apprenticeship infrastructure in the music business and studios is is kind of hard to find now you know studios are closing big studios are closing in la and new york and and uh and in seattle studio x is is no literally no longer there you know it's a hole in the ground right now Right. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I was lucky, you know, it's just kind of that old fashioned way of learning the business where, you know, I came in and I worked for free for probably a year and clean toilets and, and, uh, you know, got coffee and, and got to set up for sessions and tear down for sessions and eventually hang out around sessions. And, um, you know, there are great producers like Adam Casper and Terry date and, uh, and then like a ton of film scoring and, you know, artists like I, you know, I got to be the runner on like a Van Morrison session, you know, or Dr. John would be in town, you know? And so it's like, uh, it's such an education just to be able to be in the room and sort of keep your mouth shut and keep your ears open and uh, watch the greats do what they do. Speaking of those ears, what are some uh, wow moments that you look back on and you're like, good or bad? Wow. I I cannot believe I just heard that (laughs) or saw that. And also, wow, that's mind blowing. You must have some, as you call it, the rock and roll mailroom stories. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. I mean, those two, I mean, Van Morrison and Dr. John, those are amazing. I mean, just Van Morrison sits down at the piano, you know, and not, not a fancy mic or anything opens his mouth. And it's like, oh my God, there's that voice, you know, it's right there. And, uh, and then to watch, you know, he did it real old school, the whole band in the room and everybody playing together live and cutting tracks, you know, and writing songs all together. It just sounded so, uh, you know, so amazing. Or, you know, Dr. John, you know, with his crazy New Orleans stories and his, his band, which, you know, everybody's just an assassin at their instrument and, and watching those guys work together, but also you know, a lot of film scores. So, you know, a lot of orchestras, you know, so you'd have Mm. 50 piece orchestra in a studio and watching these musicians who had never heard the piece or read the piece of music, you know, sit down and the conductor counts off and they're playing a film score, you know, it just comes together right there all in the room. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's just a real like kind of classical, uh, not classical music, but just a real traditional uh, audio engineer kind of training of and and having great engineers walk through and kind of watching what they do. And why is he putting the mic there? And oh, how'd they get that sound? And, mm. you know, eventually, as I kind of became more of an assistant engineer, part of your job is, you know, if a producer's in there and does a mix, and it's all analog, you know, so uh, the, these days, you know, it's plugins and, and digital and, and stuff. But there, it's like, they wanted to finish one mix and then start the next song. You'd have to go and write down the position of every knob, you know, and every gear and what was patched where. And um, it's it's kind of tedious work. But at the same time, if you're curious and interested in it, you can go, oh, wait, he, he put this on the kick drum and, and oh, wow, he's turning the, you know, EQ on the 12K all the way up. And why did he do that? You know, and oh, look at this. And, and, and you can really learn a lot. 
So from, I mean, uh, clearly it was just, you were a sponge for the, for totally. like what, three or four years. Well, obviously for longer, but for three or four yeah. years, you're, you're gaining all this information and then the boys come in for avocado yeah, yeah. sessions. Totally. What, what is the, you know, you're working with Adam Casper. So yeah. I guess the first question is, what do you take from him? Um, that maybe you hadn't, that you learned, maybe it's different from what you learned from other people that were in the room. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's got a real relaxed attitude and, um, just sort of like how comfortable he could make artists feel and how it was very kind of like low pressure, um, but would still get really good performances out of people. And, and, you know, there's no right way to do it. Producers and, and engineers, you know, there's everything from the taskmaster, master, you know, drill sergeant to, you know, your best buddy to your guru, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, Are you calling out Rick Rubin? <laughs> yeah, totally. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he gets the job done, yeah, you know, yeah. like it, and he might, he might not even be there the whole time, but somehow, you know, he gets the right people together in the room and, and the magic happens. So, um, I mean, that's the other thing watching Adam and Brendan and, um, Terry date and, and tons of other great producers who were through there, just that everybody kind of had their own way to kind of get the job done. And even, yeah, uh, you know, when they're in there with a different band, they might have a different approach and, and oh, watching people kind of, yeah, you know, I mean, I've only worked, uh, as an assistant for Brendan O'Brien, um, on Pearl Jam sessions, but you know, he's very go, 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 let's go next mm. take, you know, let's go keep it moving. And I was always curious, you know, if that's sort of his trick for working with Pearl Jam to sort of light the fire into them and, and, and put the pressure on them. Uh, I, I think he's probably that way with everybody. That's just I think he is too. Ryan, Ryan uh, Williams, who, who engineered the mix on, on yield with, uh, Brendan at Southern tracks said that that's how he was with pretty much everybody. Yeah. yeah. He's go, intense and, and good. And he's got a great ear and works fast, you know, and there's something to be said for keeping things moving and keeping, you know, getting people to sort of, Oh, I got to perform here. We, here we go. Oh, it's happening. You know, and you can't and, overthink and, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, all, yeah. Which is a danger in the studio. And, and, um, so, uh, what, you know, watching Adam with those guys. And I remember on that, like, I'm, um, uh, even, you know, having been a fan of those guys, like I, I wasn't, you know, first time meeting them, just literally like taking their coffee order, you know, like what, what, what are the coffee orders, by the way? Oh, you know, uh, Matt Cameron always does a shot in the dark or red eye, which is a, a drip coffee with a shot of espresso, espresso. in it. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Jeff's kind of an iced coffee guy. I'd, oh. You know, I have to, yeah. Yeah. You know, a cold brew these days. I think, you know, I think <laughs> these are the things people want to know, Josh. Yeah, I know. This is the insta, real inside info. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's the, the thing is, you know, that's sort of the first hurdle, right? To get into yeah. the business is like, don't screw up. The, if you, if you don't screw up the coffee order, so you can. Well, it's just attention to everything detail. else. Like if you if you can Absolutely. memorize if you know those old time details, that that just shows you what you can do when it really counts, right? Totally, totally. And I remember on that session, like, so when I met them, you know, obviously, uh, you know, knew who they were, but I didn't get starstruck um, meeting them. But I remember the first time after they had set up in the in the live room. And I was at the front desk, you know, and I could hear the music coming down the hall. And the first time I kind of heard him play, like I got starstruck then because mm. that was always sort of my relation. You know, I didn't have a poster of Stone Gossard on my wall, you know, but I listened to that record Did all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, they're out there. Yeah. Um, but uh, the first time I heard them play, you know, because that was like, I guess, where I was a, a real fan of the music more than the fan of the people they're great people but but uh, i do remember sitting there at the front desk going oh my god wow that's stone gossard working on a riff 
right around the corner. That's, that's I'm curious, awesome. Josh, you're listening to this music. What, yeah. what about that session? What music stood out to you at the time before that final product comes out that we all get to hear? Yeah. And when you reflect back, were there any challenges during that recording that you specifically kind of had a hand in assisting with? Oh, I mean, anything I would have assisted at that point was, you know, uh, going to get uh, a sandwich or, you know, <laughs> or, okay, okay. you know, you know, or, or, or finding a, you know, late night uh, restaurant that would still, you know, we could put an order in, uh, you know, I, but, uh, you know, I, I, but I, I did help. Um, and that's where I ended up kind of getting hired by them after that record. Uh, George Webb, their longtime guitar tech and equipment manager, you know, in the studio, there's a lot of sitting around, hanging out you know, waiting for people, other people working or, you know, waiting for things to happen. And so George and I kind of developed a relationship hanging out there in the front lo lobby, you know, while he was waiting to, if they needed anything. And uh, since I was a guitar player and, you know, I, I didn't know anything about setting up guitars, but I always had really crappy guitars. So I kind of had to learn how to set them up. And, and so I knew a little bit about, you know, intonating guitars and, you know, when they're in the studio, they've got, you know, dozens of dozens and dozens and dozens of guitars so i didn't end up helping him restring guitars and things like that Put so in I, tunings, I all that. yeah and all that and then i play a little bit so um you know sometimes and, and this was a treat you know george before the band would come in would say hey you know i'm trying to dial in a sound for these guys here play oh, just man. play something while i try some pedals out you know so <laughs> playing through everybody's rig and uh and helping out in that way so i don't think i i didn't save the day any <laughs> at any point on that record but um but it definitely was sort of the foundation of of uh my relationship with the organization and and, and george and some and john burton and some of the other people who've worked for them for a long time so did any of the music that you could hear did anything kind of stand out to you i mean now 25 years later i can say oh my god that the, the heavy part of faithful when it kicks in, it always like killed me. Like, is there a thing, a riff, a moment that you were like, Oh, that, that's going to be amazing. If that gets on a, uh, on one of the songs. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, unemployable, you know, watching Matt come in and kind of show them and it has this cool, you know, little bend or and, and think, wow, that's so cool. It goes to the low note and bends like that. And uh, I remember, you know, it was probably life wasted. You know, I was in the back of the room when Mike was cutting his solos and, you know, I think he played on a flying V and just watching him across the room, just, just ripping. And, you know, like, how does anybody play that fast? You know, was it the V with all the, all the glow in the dark stickers on it? No, I think this was one, you know, this was like an old one that he was borrowing from somebody, you know, it was, it was a, it was a real cool old vintage, uh, flying V. So yeah. Just a vintage flying V, no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, they've got some amazing guitars. Yeah. Well, you told, um, the aforementioned Jonathan Cohen that for Backspacer for the tour that you basically that the band leveraged your audio engineering background uh to become boom's keyboard tech yeah so what was your initial reaction when that happened and did any of like the seasoned veteran roadies be like huh who's this who's this new kid or they kind of like welcome to the family son all, all of the above you know i mean it was it was funny because i mean those guys paid their dues you know they's like worked for crappy punk bands and drove vans and loaded merch trucks and slept on floors and you know here i am my first tour it's like hi guys Ooh, business, oh business class oh cool nice you know like oh what time's the breakfast buffet you know like <laughs> i mean i i i again you know 
the same way in the studio, uh, you know, I think I had learned to sort of keep my mouth shut and, and learn from, learn from my elders, um, and learned a lot, you know, Stone's a uh, longtime tech, Andy Wolf, just a, just a genius with guitars. And, you know, he can look at a tuner on a guitar and tell you what year, you know, that Gibson's from, you know, and, and little tricks and how to, you know, tips and, and how to set things up. And, um, uh, it, they've got a good, good crew. Um, uh, but you know, there are definitely some crusty, crusty roadies too, but that's part of the job, you know? <laughs> I gotta ask, I mean, working with Boom must have been a real treat. Would you say it was like a natural progression though, to then tech for Chris Cornell and Kim once Soundgarden comes back together? Yeah. I mean, that was, that was uh, a jump in intensity for sure. Um, you know, Boom's pretty laid back dude. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, every, every job on tour and on stage is important, but, uh, you know, keep keyboard, you know, keyboards aren't the focus of it. And, um, you know, keyboard teching also is like, I, I like to say it's, it's either a super easy day or a horrible day. Cause, you know, guitar is kind of, and eh, it doesn't feel right or oh, it's a little out of tune or, you know, keyboards are either like they work or one day, you know, they all work or nothing works, you know, and, and so it's, it's either, yeah, piece of cake turned them on. They worked, or you turn them on. And it's like, oh, the B three is not spinning. Why is it not spinning? You know, oh god, it's and, a thousand. Nothing old. works. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, they were built to sit in old ladies' parlors or churches, you know, and and now they're hauled all over the world. So uh, I had to learn a lot about that, but uh, definitely when I started getting involved with the uh, Soundgarden, um, you know, reboot <laughs> Soundgarden two point and um, mm-hmm. and uh, teching for Chris and Kim. Um, that's definitely the high, higher pressure situation for sure. And and things need to be right. <laughs> How do they differ? Because I, I, and I, I wouldn't ask this, but I, I watched the premier guitar episode where you kind of went through their rigs. Oh yeah. Yeah. A long, long time ago. So I've forgotten uh, yeah. what younger Josh said about the rigs at the time. How, right. how did the, I know that, that, that Kim's a much lighter picker than, one yeah. would, than you would think. How do those guys differ from what it's really interesting i mean it's super interesting i think to most people listening yeah i mean for guitar players you know uh i mean kim plays really light gauge strings so that really thin strings that are you know kind of more rubbery um and uh and so you have to have a really light touch if you if you dig in too hard you're gonna you see a nines nines yeah Yeah. and even on the low tunings you know on the low e string it's like a 46 and you know like Mm. tuning that down to like a c or even a b for like rusty cage you know it's just like Wow, 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 wow. It's just wobbly. Um, but then, you know, Chris would play 12s, you know, and and just meaty and digs in hard with his right hand. Um, but it's really part of the magic of the sound of the band. Like if you think of um like let me drown, you know, da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. You know, the they live, they both play that, you know, in unison, but Chris kind of played it, you know, very precise. Da, 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 and yeah. Kim kind of just goes blah, 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 you know, plays it with almost with one one finger and just kind of smears across it. Uh, but then you get the two of those things happening at the same time, and it's like part of the magic of that band is just like mm. both the the looseness and the slop and the the bendiness and the precision and tightness at the same time. It just works together. It's, it's, it's like the opposite of when you're tracking Hetfield, a master puppets, double everything where it's gotta be perfectly tight. It's like that, right. that dichotomy makes it work. Right. Totally. And and you get the same thing with Matt Cameron and Ben Shepard, you know, Matt's super precise, super accurate. And, and Ben is just wild and sort of unchained and unhinged and, and all over the place, especially for bass player. But when it all, you know, all four of those guys play together, it's, it's, 
you can, nothing else sounds like it. So how did you make that transition then from, so you're, you're teching for boom. Like you said, that's one thing. It, it can be fairly simple. Yeah. Um, what, how, how do you get from that to the next level up? Is it simply like this guy's good. He listens. He does a great job. Yeah. Great. Some of that. And, and, you know, and I was around, you know, and, you know, Mike would do a flight to Mars or, you know, or a um, side project here in town. Mm. And I would tech for those guys locally or, or in the studio, you know, teching with them. And um, so, you know, kind of got up to speed and, and got better as a guitar tech and, and learning that side of it. And then, so I, I know it's not a Soundgarden podcast, but when those guys sort of first uh, reformed, um, since I could record, I can do monitors, I can tune up guitars. Um, I think it was easy for me to be kind of in the corner of the room when they wanted to kind of work on stuff and not have, uh, too many people hanging out. Um, so I could wear a lot of hats. And, um, so I was lucky enough to kind of be in the room for those early days. And then as they ramped up and went on the road, I got to kind of stick with them for a little bit, which was amazing. We could obviously talk gear all night yeah. at this point, yeah. Um, yeah. which, which I mean, it, 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 there's some fascinating stuff here. Uh, I, I before we we throw it to a, um, another studio question, yeah. one one more gear question for you. Yeah, um, sure. technology has evolved, Josh, a lot over the last 15, 20 years. How would you say? And I say this in particular as it relates to an album like Gigaton, where you know you see the band evolving their sound and yeah. experimenting with technology you hear a drum beat that sounds like it's an electronic drum beat a dance mm -hmm. beat no it's actually matt cam playing right. live drums so how would you say that each band member of pearl jam has evolved in how they play or record since you started with them yeah uh i mean they all to some degree or another kind of have a home studio or you know little portable setups and things and um mm -hmm. you know you know it's really i mean as much nice gear and uh, you know uh, appreciation as they have for nice guitars and microphones and everything no nobody in that band's really like a gearhead or too techy or you know <laughs> even with all the guitar pedals and things you know they're they're not the sort of like internet aficionados or where it's like oh this era tube screamer is is the one and i want the one with the you know square text rather than the <laughs> you know, script text or you know all the little arguments people get into online about you know what's better you know they're basically just like I've played through Mike McCready's rig many, many, many times. And I still sound like me, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, all the fingers, and, Josh. and I've heard Mike play through, you know, a Squire Strat through a, you know, solid state practice amp. And he sounds like Mike McCready. You know? I was going to say, he brought the tone master amps the last tour. I was like, right. oh, clutch the pearls. I know, totally. what are you doing? I know, I know. I was a little offended too, but they sound pretty damn good. <laughs> I think yeah. this last tour might've been the best sounding tour. And yeah, maybe ever. I thought it was fantastic sounding. Great. Yeah. What shows did you did you see? We both went to uh, the LA Forum shows. Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah, they were. Yeah. they were fantastic. Yeah. Um, I was trying to thought. Oh, so when you think about live versus studio, yeah. Um, and they're not total gearheads, but they have a plethora of amazing stuff. Yeah. In the time that you've known them, um. Is there anything that each guy kind of prefers live to studio or vice versa? That's, that's really like vastly obvious. Mm, interesting. Or is it pretty much I'm, like what, what I use in the, in the studio is what I use on the road and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, one cool thing is, you know, Mike McCready has a 1959 Les Paul, which is, you know, the Holy grail of, of guitars, you know, and, and he takes that out on the road and 
plenty of people who have a guitar that valuable, both, you know, financially and, you know, um, emotionally <laughs> valuable would put it in a glass case on the wall. And, uh, and, uh, he's out there, you know, playing in the studio, playing it on stage. And, uh, it sounds great in both places, you know, and he's so still playing made to be played. Fret, so yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and then everybody can enjoy it rather than, you know, it being in a museum. What, what um what, just real quick on that on that particular guitar because that's like the Mike guitar, right? Uh, when you think about McCready, you think about that one first, at least I do. What yeah. um what is it like to hold that particular guitar? Yeah, well, it's nerve wracking when you're running it over to his house and it's in the back of your Hyundai station wagon, you know, and you're <laughs> thinking like, I don't think I'm going to stop for gas on the way back, you know, because <laughs> that thing at the time was probably worth more than my house, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I mean, they are, there is some magic to it, you know, um, you know, those, those instruments, those old instruments, you know, whether it's the old wood or, all the songs that were played on it over the years and the songs that were written on these guitars as they pass through one hand and somebody else to another, you know, there, there's an intangible kind of mojo uh, to some of those old instruments. And when well, some and of the stuff they've gotten recently, yeah. I mean, the, the gifts that, that uh, Ed has gotten like that Rick from, from Tom Petty. And there's sure. what's the, um, well, Brendan O'Brien gave him uh, um, another guitar, one. Didn't he? Did he? Yeah, didn't he? I'm not going to tell oh, you. Those guys. Yeah. Um, what's the one? It's a it's a new one that Stone plays. It's the gold. It looks like a three thirty five, but it's not. I don't. Think. Oh yeah, the Les Paul. Uh, what's that uh, thing called? Uh, it's so nice. What are they? I forget the name. Yeah, those things are great. Oh yeah. my god, they're kind of sleeper guitars. Although now that he's playing them, they probably are exactly value. Yeah. Anyways, um, you mentioned Brendan O'Brien before. We yeah. mentioned Brendan O'Brien before. Um, and you worked with him on Backspacer and Lightning Bowl and. Like I said, we we talked to Ryan Williams um, about the whole yield experience with Brendan, and he had so many great things to say. So I want to know, you know, you said one day with him was like a year in the studio. We talk about yeah. being a sponge with Adam Casper. What's it like being right. a sponge with a fast moving Brendan O'Brien? Oh man, yeah, you you get saturated quick. Uh, but I mean, like I'm such a Brendan O'Brien. I'm probably a bigger Brendan O'Brien fan than I was a Pearl Jam fan. You know, I, I mean, I literally remember looking at Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Mm -hmm. Black Crow's Southern Harmony, you know, probably verses and and literally, you know, before I knew anything going like, hey, this guy's name is on all three of these records. Like, what is it? What does an engineer do? What does a producer do? You know, um, so I probably was more starstruck meeting Brendan O'Brien than I was meeting any better. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, he's just he, I mean, he, he's got the great ear. He can play. He can play every instrument. You mm -hmm. know, the the story that hard to handle. uh black crow song you know that's him playing the solo on there i mean he can is it really yeah yeah i mean he can yeah i think yeah i think he was just like yeah let me lay something down you know and i'm sure there's a story to it but but i mean you can he we can got some guys we could ask on that one actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so yeah uh and and just you know watching him with the band and and you know the band's you know great they know how to write songs um but you know i got to be around like on backspacer when they were kind of songwriting and then you know brendan flew up a couple weeks later and just watching him go you know first time hearing the song go okay that's great yeah let's repeat that part cut that part you know let's get through this faster okay play this okay double that okay great okay and then all of a sudden you're like oh my god it sounds like a rock. It's that fast, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, he knows he knows right away. He's got the great, great ear, great instincts. Um, so just, just sort of kind of watching that, you know, with my eyes wide and ears wide, going, wow, <laughs> that guy, that guy knows what he's doing. 
Josh, let's 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 shift gears slightly here. You were part of that Temple of the Dog 25th anniversary tour. Yeah. Uh, Jason and I went to the show here in L.A. And yeah, it was a good show. It, it was special for a lot of reasons. Obviously, especially given the what what would tragically happen not soon yeah. not not soon thereafter. But what is what is a few what is a takeaway or a few takeaways from that particular run of shows? And is there anything special that you really remember from that experience? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, so on that tour, I was Chris's monitor engineer. So he, uh, you know, he used in-ear monitors, you know, basically, you know, fancy earbuds. Um, and because I had been mixing him at rehearsals and stuff and, and in the studio, um, you know, I think he wanted to kind of get that studio headphone mix uh, on the road. So Carrie Kaez, uh Pearl Jam's longtime monitor engineer, mixed the band and I, I stood right side by side and I just got to mix Chris, which is a real luxury. I mean, usually mm. monitor engineer, you're taking care of a whole band. So it was just, you know, me and Chris. And um, I guess what like one special memory, you know, I, I forget what the song is. It, you know, it was a Mother Love Bone song, Holy Roller, I think, mm -hmm. you know, or they, they played a couple. Uh, but there's a whole um, Andy rap that he does kind of, you know, a spoken word thing. And, you know, we had the master tapes in the PJ vault. So, you know, we were able to pull that and, um, and sample it basically, you know, and so I would trigger it on a pedal, you know, over like instrumental breakdown section. Mm. So you could hear Andy's voice while the band played. And I remember back, Chris would just sort of go back by the drums and kind of kneel with his back to the audience. And, and he'd be hearing, you know, Andy's voice in his head. And, and, you know, you could tell it was like, and, and you just see him kind of smiling and, I, I don't know, but, you know, probably remembering his friend and, and, you know, it was sort of like me and Chris and, you know, we're the only people kind of hearing that mix, you know, and, wow. and kind of watching him. Uh, that's kind of a special memory, kind of watching the twinkle in his eye as he listened to his, you know, long lost friends vo voice in his head. <laughs> but also, I mean, it was just, they, they rocked. I mean, they played Zeppelin and the cure and, you know, Sabbath and and all their songs and and I could tell the band was just having a, a great time and it's uh, I mean there's many tragedies came out of that tra later tragedy but uh, it's really too bad that you know I think they were excited to keep going and, and who knows work on new material or at least just keep adding to their uh, live catalog. Did you ever overhear anybody talk about something else more new beyond that tour? I mean, I think just as far as, you know, it seemed like everybody just had a great time and loved playing together. And, and you know, I think both for Chris being, you know, uh, not, you know, not fronting Soundgarden, but fronting Temple of the Dog and 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 for the PJ guys now, uh, you know, being out, you know, it was sort of like everybody was sort of the pressure was off in a way, you know, uh, and then, of course, they wanted to be good, but it was sort of looser. And I think, you know, um, they were just enjoying making music together. Uh, and and so you know i i didn't hear any uh studio dates booked on the calendar or anything like that but uh you know there was good vibes all around well now let's skip ahead to where we kind of started with gigaton and yeah. um you said you went to university of washington UW, and i'm, I'm gonna say the entire major because it, yeah. <laughs> it there's a reason for it 
Comparative history of ideas, computer music, digital, and experimental arts. If that is not gigaton to a T, I don't know what is. You were destined to make that record, my friend. Is that just, yeah, is so. that just a fancy way of saying you were a liberal arts major, Josh? Is I done. mean, I'm kind of. I, I mean, the, I remember the chair of the comparative history of ideas department said that they, he was training baristas. <laughs> you, 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 you graduate from that, and then you can pretty much just like go talk philosophy in a coffee shop. But it's what you're qualified for um yeah no i mean it's funny you know sometimes it's sort of feel like it's like some dog millionaire when you look back uh at different things in your life and go oh that that came in handy you know 15 years later <laughs> or you know like uh you know uh one of the things early on with gigaton um they uh matt was out with soundgarden and they wanted to kind of start demoing some songs and so it would be stone and i or mike and i you know in the studio and they just wanted to play to a click track but because in high school and in college, I used to make beats for rappers and, you know, and knew how to program MIDI and program drums, you know, I would say, oh, here, let me program a little drum beat. That's more fun to play too than a metronome, you know, and, you know, Stone would go, oh, that's awesome. Great. He's a drummer that never gets tired and never complains and <laughs> and, uh, and had a lot of fun with that. But, um, you know, it was there was no ulterior motive, but I think, you know, by doing that, I sort of got to be part of the formation. You know, I didn't write any of those songs, but um, helped kind of shape the direction of some of those songs pretty early on. Um, so it is kind of funny looking back and go, oh, wow, I guess, you know, making beats in high school <laughs> paid off in a weird way. Yeah. That's a that's a wild way to think about it. Something that you just yeah. did for S's and G's, you know, when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah. You know, plug it, you know, it's, it leads you to that moment. It's, it, oh, it, I mean. Creativity is just... I kind of think like, and I worry about, you know, I have kids and, and, and kids today. Like, I think every good thing I have in my life came out of being bored when I was 13. And, you know, just like there was nothing on TV, you know, and having a four track, you know, or having a guitar and, you know, the latest copy of guitar magazine and learning how to play some song that, you know, you know, it's like kids these days, <laughs> you know, again, they sound old, but, you know, they're, they're not bored enough, you know, and it's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I mean, like, literally, I learned how to, I first recorded, I had like two beat up old cassette decks, and I had a mixer from something and I would record onto one cassette deck, and then play it and along, you know, into the other one, and then be able to kind of layer and overdub back and forth. And that's just because I was bored as shit you know guitar and, player uh, comes out you look at the five tabs they gave you for the month it's like all right yeah I guess and I'm I playing learn... dio holy diver this month yeah or i'm learning like you know runaway train by you know, soul like, asylum, that, soul asylum. That... okay like that's what that's the song i get to learn today you know wasn't there was no like tab archive or anything you know so yeah um you know if i had had you know a, a playstation i probably would never learn how to play guitar right right <laughs> So, so Josh, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about kind of experimenting with those MIDI beats and the influence that that had had. There's a lot of songs on this record that don't really follow a lot of the usual traditional song arrangements. Yeah, yeah. Did you actively push these guys to play outside the box more or were they just open to it and you just kind of facilitated and encouraged that? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I wasn't pushing them to do anything really, but um, I think because I was willing to, you know, uh, I bring up Stone's name a lot. We've worked together a lot, uh, both during Gigaton and after, but I think I was just willing to kind of stick with them and, and follow down this road and we could spend all day working on a song, you know, and, and try things out. And then the next day, 
uh, Stone was like, eh, I don't think let's try over, you know, and it, and it that never bummed me out, you know, it never felt like wasted time. Um, I think I enjoy the process so much, you know, and enjoy the exploration and willing to to try anything and sort of <laughs> take a lot of time. So I think maybe if some of that came out, you know, if you're saying things are sort of non-traditional structures or sounds or things might have come out of that sort of, I mean, I guess it's a willingness to experiment in a luxury, you know, I mean, um, we recorded in the Vans on studio, you know, there was no clock running, you know, no uh, studio bill to pay. Um, so we could kind of take as much time as we wanted. Did that um, ever get, yeah. um, uh, I don't want to say frustrating, but like, did you, was, did it ever feel like, you know, they're jamming on these ideas, they're jamming on these ideas. Did it ever feel like, okay, this isn't really, this isn't going where I think they want it to go. Should I step in and say, Hey, well, let's take a five or let's, let's try that other thing that you guys want to want to try. Or do you got to just sit back and let them be the traffic cop? And simply man the buttons. Yeah, I mean more more the latter, um, especially because you know when it started, it wasn't like, all right, kid, you're the producer, right. let's go. Um, you know, I was just the you know at that point, I you know worked on side projects and mixed some stuff for Mike and and um, recorded them in the home studio, so it wasn't an unknown quantity, but I wasn't the the producer. You know, I was just there to kind of facilitate and, and help. You didn't feel compelled um, to, to 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 stand up and and give an opinion at all. No, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, a few times where like I kind of did have an idea and kind of throw it out there and it was sort of like, okay, here we go. I got an idea, you know, and, um, I mean, those guys don't have, you know, they're, they're, they're humble. They're, you know, I mean, but you got to read the room and, and sure. take your moments. Um, and, you know, but I think some of the way maybe, especially early on that I influenced things was just sort of, um, you know, Sonic's like getting a cool tone or something that could inspire, you know, and, and I would do that with Mike, you know, Mike's, um, you know, a lot of times Mike's best take is the first take, you know, if he walks in, he's just taking his coat off and, you know, setting his coffee down and you hand him a guitar. That's probably like, you know, that's your, that's your window for getting something great. Not that he, he doesn't, you know, really work through things and, and, and when needed, um, but he's just kind of, when he's not thinking about it, you get great stuff. So a lot of times, you know, you know, if Mike showed up at 10, I'd show up at eight, you know, and set the, you know, have the, set the amps up and set up uh, a cool tone. And then so that when Mike walked in, I could go, hey, check out this pedal, check out this sound and throw a guitar on him. And he'd go, oh, that's awesome. And and maybe he'd come up with something, you know, well, I mean, it's always great. But um, so, you know, I think I had some influence in there. And then just, you know, where you're constantly doing rough mixes. And a lot of times, you know, the guys would come in and just play a bunch of stuff and say, okay, cut that together, you know, make, make it sound good. So I could kind of, and, <laughs> and rearrange the structure or, you know, um, I mean, it's jumping ahead much later, but you know, at the end of dance of the clairvoyance, you know, there's all those vocal levels layers uh -huh. and, um, you know, early on, like that was Ed just sort of trying things, uh, separately, you know, and I remember he went home and I was like, oh, that, I wonder if that would work on top of the other thing, you know? And so kind of, I, I took, you know, he was, I think he was probably trying three or four different ideas to see what would kind of stick for the outro. And I just sort of stacked them all on top of each other and, you know, stuff like that. And sometimes you do that and you next day you play it for Ed and he goes, well, that's cool. And, you know, probably eight out of 10 times they go, oh, okay, well, you know, well, just, we're going to try something else, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> so I think it's, you really have to be kind of egoless and um, uh, not get, get too upset 
or, or attached to things right. and, and trust, trust their instincts. And, you know, and, and also it's, you know, it's their record, you know, and they're Pearl Jam. They know, they know how to do it. <laughs> um, so, so a lot of the times it was me sort of, uh, and then other times it was sort of, and again, as uh, over the years of recording it, uh, kind of facilitating between band members, you know, and they had uh, a very open, um, you know, a lot of times, um, I think some people think Gigaton was recorded like in separate rooms and, and at different times, but it, it, they were, you know, it was often, uh, everybody in there at some point and then two people would stay or two people would come early, um, and work on parts of it. Um, losing my train of thought. Oh, but, uh, Sometimes it would be, you know, Mike would put a part down and then I'd play it for Ed the next day and Ed would go, yeah, ugh, no, I don't like that. Don't like that. Don't like that. You know, and then I could um, go to Mike and go, you know, I, he didn't like the tone we got, but, you know, I, he did like the rhythm. You know, there was this rhythm thing you did, you know, let's let's try a different tone and go go with that rhythm. And then Mike would try a different approach. And great, you know, so sort of kind of trying to understand what it was that different people wanted out of a song and, uh, and changing it, tweaking it. I want to hone in on one song in particular. Um, yeah. You talked about picking your moments, right? Yeah. So Pearl Jam is known in large part for their iconic live performances and yeah. their history of live performances. And you can go through the entire catalog and, and find at least one unique instance of pretty much every song ever being played. Yeah. It's very notable that one song off this record has yet to be played live. Yeah, yeah. And that song, Comes Then Goes, is a song that you, you were there for during yeah. its inception and, and, and the recording of that. And I'm just curious what your take is on that as far as as why they haven't played it what what yeah what, do, do you have a theory on that what do you think you know i i don't know i mean and and you know it was never explicitly kind of talked about you know what it what it's about and you know i mean obviously it's about loss and friendship and um you know life and and um you know we can all sort of do the math on what it you know <laughs> what it might be about uh so i mean this is not any insider info i'm i'm coming at it with as much info as you but i think it's a it's a personal song you know how whatever it's about and and it's sort of a long long song and you know i think to play it at the forum you know and you know after the first encore you know i think maybe just just doesn't fit the the flow so you know um i bet it'll it'll come at some point but uh Here's my yeah. follow-up to that. Jason and I have had uh, a lengthy debate on this show about this song, m mostly because I've often felt like this song, for me, I wondered if it would have benefited from the rest of the band being on it, yeah. I, especially given its length. Yeah. And uh, Jason thinks it's it's absolutely beautiful and perfect as is with just adding the guitar. W was there, when, when you're listening to this, did, did you ever feel like, there needed some there needed to be something else on that track or did you just kind of record it and ed said this, i've got this thing and this is how i'm doing it and you know help me lay it down we tried you know i mean it, the initial you know acoustic guitar and vocal was done you know same day you know right there first or second take um and ed actually doubles the acoustic most of the time on electric you know it's it, you kind of it just sort of melds into one one tone so there's actually an electric guitar uh 
kind of dark doubling the acoustic i think pretty much the whole song and then we did do some layers and you kind of hear them hint you know kind of creep up of some feedback and things and different band members tried it but i think everybody uh just sort of felt like that was a really special song and and didn't want to get in the way of it you know and uh, i've heard i've heard not specifically to that song but jeff amit uh will talk a lot about like sometimes his part is no part you know and and you know to to the silence is his contribution to the track you know to and they're very you know sophisticated mature you know musicians and humans and don't try and just get on it just to be there you know if if it's not making it better um you know that they'll, they'll they'll delete it you know so and that goes for any song but it's interesting because like yeah. with a song like uh, Sleeping By Myself, that's a, a Uke song on Ed's album. And right. Brendan hears that and says, this is this is a Pearl Jam song. Right. So he encourages them to bring that into the studio, get the rest of the guys on it. So I, that's right. why I was wondering if you heard that song comes and goes and thought the rest of the band needs to be on this. Or if they were on it and you took a step back and said, you know what, guys, I think we need to pivot. That There's something about the intimacy of this without all of you there. And yeah. to your point, you know maybe no part is the best part i mean i think so i mean i i back where we ended up on it but you know there's obviously room for different for sure opinions. no i i'm but, not but, saying one way or another is better no I mean, but it yeah um, I'm, i was know, I'm more interested in the process yeah i mean for me i guess the two things i kind of thought about as as that song was sort of developing and mixing and uh there's a wilco song via chicago which has this uh -huh. crazy you know it's like this kind of a pretty acoustic song and then there's just this like chaotic atonal you know cloud that kind of comes in and out um so you know i i thought maybe we could do that sort of in the, the middle section where ed's really you know um you know it could kind of go crazy and um but the other thing I thought about, I read a quote from uh, Thelonious Monk, and it was mm -hmm. his list. Of, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it was sort of a list of rules for his band. You know, and uh, you know stuff like dress nice and be on time. And <laughs> but one of the things he said was, um, "Don't play all the notes. Like let let some of the music happen in the audience's mind." You know, mm -hmm. and I think that's like really powerful. And I think, in a way, I think having some of that blank canvas for you to imagine what what could have been or what could be um is almost more powerful and it, and it sort of like draws you in um whereas you know if we'd filled up every every hole and every note and every space um you may maybe wouldn't you know it would either get you or it wouldn't but i think having sort of that choosing your own adventure open-ended interpretation sort of like a movie that doesn't tie up with a nice bow at the end you know you you keep thinking about it um, yeah so i think and you know, in a song about loss and and uh, just raw emotion, you know, I think, you know, it was pretty much, you know, we tried stuff, but it was like, nope, that didn't make it better, you know, and and cool. it, it kind of stood alone. So, um, cool. you know, I'm sure Brandon could have put something pretty cool. <laughs> no, I'm, again, but, it was. Yeah. I'm, I was curious how you approached that situation. If if you took a similar approach to what Brandon did, or if if you went in, and, and but in the reverse in the sense that the band was there and you said hey let's let's go sans band or if it was a situation where it just organically happened as it did and you just let it be and so I, I, i've always yeah, wondered no, I mean, how that played out you know it it was deliberate you know i think on the um on the band's part to you know i, I really do think you know mike and stone and jeff and matt are playing on that song and their part is silence you know Got it. uh uh not to be too uh 
you know, new age about it. But no, um, <laughs> it's I, uh, I, 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 it's a great summation. I appreciate the I, perspective. I, I, I think everybody, everybody is 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 a part of that song, even if it's just Ed. That, that's that's song. a good way to put it, uh, considering what many consider the song to kind of be about why totally. others wouldn't from a personal standpoint want to be involved but if they all feel like they are channeling themselves through the simplicity of it then yeah i'm i'm happy with that that, that that's oh that's yeah fantastic and and every time we played that song you know with the band in the control room and, and listening everybody was just like blown away you know? and i think it's it's one of my favorites of the lyrics ever i i yeah. think that song lyrically is a plus so yeah. uh, no 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 uh no argument from me from that yeah, um yeah i've read that you contributed musically to some of these songs is that true yeah i mean that was sort of like okay really am i gonna do this but you know <laughs> what did you play uh i mean play some keyboards on songs and you know and and some sort of textural things or you know sometimes you know the beginning of like retrograde you know there's that sort of cloudy mm. airy kind of sound and you know that was like a little bit of stone, um, you know, playing something and had a reverb tail, you know, through a pedal and it was just a cool sound. And, and, um, you know, at, you know, over, you know, it was a couple of years of recording and demoing and I kind of kept like a little grab bag every time we had some kind of cool sounds or things that were interesting. And I kind of file them away and try and find spots to, mm. to put them in, you know, where it was appropriate. So there was some stuff like that where I might've sampled a little bit of stones, guitar an atmospheric thing. And then, you know, use that to and play it on a keyboard um, to to add to the atmosphere of a song. And some of it was like, you know, I would just sort of have an idea. And, you know, th those guys uh, were trusted me enough to, you know, uh, let me kind of mess around, you know, so they'd, they'd leave for the day and I could hang out for the rest of the day and just sort of play with the tracks and, and play with the arrangements, play with sounds. And some of it, you know, you know, and again, a lot of it was sort of like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, we don't need that, you know. <laughs> But uh, but good idea, Josh. <laughs> put, put it in the uh, deluxe edition for twenty year anniversary. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but you know, other things, you know, uh, they were like, "Oh, that's cool. Yeah, leave it in there." You know, and uh, you know, they don't need a. There's plenty of great guitar players in that band, and I'm not a great keyboard player, but um, you know, I might have a sound in mind or or a, a direction. You know, a lift. The song might need something to get from this this section to another section, and um, I would kind of sketch an idea out, but. Uh, I'm certainly no keyboard shredder. <laughs> so you mentioned Jeff said uh, my part sometimes is no part, right? Yeah. So let's let's take Mike's solo on Quick Escape. Yeah. So you, you said it was first take. Uh, guy's a beast, obviously. How did you end up deciding though to have Jeff essentially do a bass solo underneath a portion of that? I mean, and as, a, as opposed to because that blew my fucking mind when I heard that the first time. I'm like, oh my god, double solo. Yeah, I mean, I think Jeff had laid that down and Mike just sort of blazed over it. And, you know, um, and you know, I don't think those two parts happen simultaneously in time, but, um, but, uh, it just sounded so good. And, and Mike's just losing his mind. And I think on that one and a few times, you know, Mike would be sitting there playing and, and I'd sit there twisting knobs on his pedal board or, you know, just kind of messing around and experimenting. And I think that one, by the end of it, he pretty much had every pedal in his pedal board turned on. You know? Wow. Does he come but, in with, with, with phrasing that he's written or, or jumping off points, like first couple of bar things and then just kind of wings it or is, I'm, is he writing any of it? How does that work for him? Yeah. I mean, for like that solo, I think is just play, 
you know, it's just, you know, his his life experience coming out in mm. two two minutes of, of solo. Um, but, you know, other things I think, you know, like retrograde, some of those little melodic things, you know, he might have worked out in advance, you know, and 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 maybe sort of a general shape to things. Um, and, you know, he he's a great writer. Um, and, but I think a lot of the time, especially around solos, is just pure improvisation, pure feeling. And, uh, you know, maybe in his mind, he sort of has a, a roadmap, but, you know, every, every take will be different, you know? So he, you know, I mean, he, he wildly different sometimes. I think that makes sense. It lines up with, uh, the, the solos on immortality. There was a whole yeah. stretch during that, um, tour, not, not the gigaton tour, but the, yeah. back in like, you know, 95, I think where, uh, you'd listen to every one of the live versions of that song and the solo was wildly different each and every time. Totally. Uh, so, uh, let's, let's, let's bring it back to dance of the clairvoyance yeah. for, for a quick moment. Um, you said that this song is a great example of how, of how Pearl Jam cracked the code. So when we look ahead to what's next with, uh, the guys working with Andrew, what yeah. seeds do you think the guys planted with that song that you think might blossom in the next album? Yeah. I mean, I don't know specifically, you know, musically as, as far as like, you know, they're going to make a dance record or a yeah. know, new <laughs> new wave record or um but i think it it did sort of uh not that they were wary of of technology um but i think it kind of they they all kind of got uh, uh open a little, open their minds a little more to kind of what could be done in different ways of working and um you know one of the things i love about pro tools you know digital the digital recording mm -hmm. program uh everybody uses but um you know a lot of times it's misused to make things perfect you know and uh and to, to auto-tune things to death and cut up drums and, and suck the life out of uh music but but the other thing it's great for uh is you can leave things messy you know and you can record you know in the in days of analog tape you could maybe only get 15 or 30 minutes of recording mm -hmm. at a time you know this you know we could uh and this is jumping ahead but like working with jeff on uh the under the banner of heaven soundtrack you know we would record for you know, three hour improv improv improvisations, you know, and then go back and be able to mine that. And, you know, uh, a lot of that, you know, dance the clairvoyance, you know, stone's bass part, you know, was probably the first time. I mean, when he was just poking around, you know, we just plugged the bass into a guitar amp, you know, and, and just weren't being precious about sound, you know, and tone. And in, in a way it can be really liberating to just know you can kind of keep trying things and, and, uh, and then on the other end, you know, we can use those first performances. We can use the the thing from the demo, you know, we can take a sound off of, you know, Ed's, you know, little portable recorder and fly that in. Um, so you can also use some of the technology to keep things messy and, and, and to, you know, not overthink things. And uh, right. so I think, you know, the gigaton process, maybe, you know, they're more open to, you know, possibilities of, of different ways of working. The, I mean, it's, it's a confluence of all of the eras. I mean, you've got this new way of doing things with all the new technology, but then again, you've got a 19th century pump organ, you've right. got 70 year old guitars. It's like everything in between. Oh. Um, and, and, and we know that Andrew Watt has his fingertips on like every possible old piece of machinery known to man. Including sure. like, you know, Elton John's piano or whatever. Right. So right. I, I feel like my personal opinion is that what you 
basically facilitated with Gigaton was this wide ranging way for them to find something new through all of the old. And, yeah. and then you guys distilled it over a few years. Yeah and, yeah. and what might happen next is that what they learned from working with you will get shot through a, a bottle rocket with yeah, Andrew, yeah. because he, as far as I know, he works pretty quickly like Brendan does. Yeah. That's what I hear. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel like we're going to, and I, I, I make the comparison to, um, if you remember the, some kind of monster documentary with Metallica, uh-huh. oh yeah, they, yeah. they had the, uh, the therapist guy. Yeah. And he was saying the work that you're doing now will show up on the next record and the record after that. Right, I almost right. think that all the work that we saw you do with them. Yeah. Yeah. It came out on gigaton, but it's going to come back with dividends on the next one. Yeah. With yeah. Andrew, because now it's, it's in their DNA, this new way of doing things as well in your fingerprints totally. on that. So I think it's just going to be electric and you should get like a yeah. credit. <laughs> look, look, look for your carbon footprint <laughs> and, and then, yeah, exactly. then and ask why Pearl Jam didn't plant a tree to uh, offset you. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. I mean, it's cheesy, but it, it is just, uh, it, it's special and an honor to have been a be and be a part of the, you know, their, their story, you know, yeah. and to be able to contribute is, is uh, unbelievable. You know, I've been pinch myself sometimes still, you know, we do a thing on this show called essential song hmm. and where we kind of argue for one song that defines the record i think we've done like i don't know two-thirds of the records records in the, in the catalog mm-hmm. i think i have an idea of what you might say but i want to know what you think is the most essential song from gigaton uh gosh i mean i think i would say i mean for me and being biased i mean it would be dance of the clairvoyance mm-hmm. um because um well, A, I mean, I had no idea where that, you know, literally it started, you know, Matt had some program drum beats that Stone and I, you know, but me at Stone's direction, you know, chopped up and sort of put a structure. And I'm sort of thinking like, we're just chopping a drum beat up, really? Like, you know, like, okay, okay, Stone, like, let's spend a couple hours doing this and, and see what happens. And then just kind of stuck with him and they stuck with me and, you know, people tried stuff. And, um, you know, Pearl Jam doesn't need me to make a record obviously um but i feel like that song you, you know uh they would have made a you know i i don't want to sound arrogant but um i'm not saying they wouldn't even made that song without me but 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 uh I, you know i feel like like you said i kind of i got to help you know show them a new way or collaborate you know, we all discovered together i wasn't showing them anything but you know was was holding their <laughs> holding their hand on the journey of discovering something new um and you know i think that song uh you know it has its uh dna from other pearl jam songs but you know kind of doesn't sound like anything no. uh on, it on any for other a record when i first heard yeah it. I know. and and up until ed sang on it where i was like this is i mean this is a great song but i don't think it's is it a pearl jam song you know and then you know when ed put his stuff on there it's like oh yeah okay this is a pearl jam song. <laughs> uh and then sitting on that you know sort of felt like you know sitting on some you know berry gold or something that just like oh my i couldn't wait to see what the fans would think of it because it was so different um so so that one will always have a special place in in my heart Cool. Well, last question here for you, and it's not going to be our question. It's it's going to come from um, one of our patrons on Patreon. Yeah. And uh, this question is, which song was the easiest to get from seed to flower and vice versa? Oh, interesting. 
Easy of course, our patron. That's the best question of the whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he pays the big bucks. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I would, in some ways, I would think, all right. I mean, Jeff brought that in as a, you know, he, he had the melodies and, and, and the lyrics and, and had kind of demoed it. Um, and that one was just felt very, um, not easy, but like it, it just flowed. You know, everybody, Matt, right away sat down and kind of knew what he was going to do and cool um, Floyd vibe to it that one. Yeah, totally. Um, and then, you know, Ed, Ed just, you know, really wanted to kind of like do Jeff's lyrics and delivery justice. And, and, uh, and we, you know, recorded him very close, you know, very, very close mic'd. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it just feels like he's right there in your head. And, and I love the intimacy of it. And as an engineer and a producer, I mean, I, I sort of felt like that when I was a little bit, um, you know, it's not flashy, but I sort of felt like Neo in the Matrix where, I mean, it, it, you know, I'm not saying it's the best mix ever, but it turned out exactly how I imagined it. And a lot of times with a mix, you're sort of battling the material or battling and trying to push it to be better and, and you end up frustrated. And, and that one was sort of just like, okay, I know Kung Fu, like, wow, okay, this, this like, <laughs> like, I can do this, like you know, and, and it just, uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best song or best mix in the world, but, um, but you know, I sort of that one felt vision. good. It, it had a vision. I had a vision for it, and it, and I, and I was able to sort of translate that uh, into the speakers. Um, yeah, you, you, with, you realized your ambition for that song. Cool, <laughs> exactly. Now, ooh, so, how about the reverse? Oh, oh, the trickiest one. Yeah. Ooh, the trickiest one. Uh, I mean, some of it, I mean, believe it or not, you know, is like, um, like Super Blood Wolf Moon, like getting, Ed, getting the guitar tone just right. You know, Ed, he's got a just crazy powerful right hand. And, um, and he's also, um, very detail oriented and uh, picky's not even the right word, but like, you know, he, there's some parts of that tone and that performance that he was very particular about. And while at the same time wanting it to sound sort of loose and unhinged and wild and dirty and distorted and sort of like we, we tried to, a lot of different approaches, especially to Ed's guitar tone on that one um, to sort of getting it to sound the way his vision, you know, <laughs> the way he had it in his head, which is the whole job of the producer <laughs> is sort of translating what what's in the artist's mind to, you know, what's on tape or, you know, what's coming out of the speakers. Um but, you know, and and then, you know, I think just generally for me is just sort of, you know, being in the middle of five different, you know, th- those guys love each other and they get along and they're, you know, nobody's getting in fistfights in the studio, but they're strong personalities and strong artistic opinions and, and they care a lot about, uh, you know, their parts and what everybody else is playing and how things are turning out. And um, so I think for me, you know, my biggest growth, I guess, or the thing I learned most was sort of you know, the technical side is fun, but, you know, the real challenge is the interpersonal side mm-hmm. and sort of navigating the different personalities and, and um, you know, uh, getting along and, and, and keeping things moving. You know, I mean, that was the thing I always kept thinking about with Gigaton is just keep everybody excited, you know, keep, keep everybody engaged, keep them, keep it moving. Uh, maybe not in a Brendan sort of let's go kind of way, but in a sort of inspiring way, you know, I'd spent a lot of time on the rough mixes, you know, because I wanted everybody to go home and listen to it and 
selfishly go like, oh, wow, Josh, Josh is awesome, you know, of course, but we'll be excited, be more importantly, be excited about that song and inspired. So the next day when they come in, they go, oh, I got an idea for that thing. Um, You know, so uh, keeping keeping everybody excited and inspired, um, you know, over over a few years, you know, it's a long process. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's probably the number one thing a a good producer does is is keep the band inspired. Yeah, and totally. you you clearly did that because yeah. three years is a long time to have the stamina to <laughs> constantly file away nuggets. Okay, this is going to be the open, the false intro to whoever said, and this is going to be the the swooshy thing behind retrograde, and, and then to to deal with five big egos who have been doing this for thirty two years or whatever whatever it was. Yeah, um, it's very commendable what you cobbled together we'll just say and and, and, and massaged and, and what what we got three years ago almost to the day um which we, yeah. i think ball and i what and a, I what a three years a lot's happened in those three years oh my right. god a lot of life has happened josh yeah, but no uh we 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 think the album is fantastic and we really well, appreciate you. you uh yeah coming on the show and talking to us oh thanks it's it's fun to fun to talk josh evans producer of gigaton under the banner of heaven the stone gossard ani defranco song I mean, oh, yeah. Thunder Pussy, what else we got? Uh, Painted Shield. Painted yeah. Shield. Painted Shield. That's yeah. right. Well, thank you very much, Josh. Thank you. We appreciate you, man. Thank you. Likewise. That was absolutely lovely. It was an hour well spent, Paul. It surely was. Uh, I have to say, he is such a uh, a delightful, um, easygoing, but consummate professional. I, I, I can see why the band felt so comfortable working with him. Yeah, he definitely very even keeled. Um, you feel comfortable that he will absorb the road bumps for you but at the same time, give you the platform to just do what you want to do and do what you need to do. And what we got was gigaton. And as I said in the interview, I think the seeds are planted and the trees are growing and the plants are growing and the, and the band has found a new baseline, if that's even possible. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely got me excited for what comes next. I mean, he, he was able to help them embrace a, a new level of, of experimentation of broadening the depth and breadth of their sound and what they were capable of musically. Um, in a lot of ways, they, they I don't want to say they redefined themselves, but I think he gave them a very safe, unique space to, um, to just experiment. They're, 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 it, it seemed to be a pressure-free environment. Not, not that the environments they recorded in prior to this album were, were necessarily pressure-filled due to the, the gentleman who engineered recorded and mixed and mastered it but um i do think that josh's particular touch here uh, and their familiarity with him in, in different contexts prior to this album just really enabled them to um i guess uh just go with things you know what mm-hmm. i mean there, there there wasn't a lot of um pushing and prodding and it just seemed it is how do i say this it was an organic process yes Yes. Um, well, there you go. Whatever questions you might have, whatever comments you might have, please leave them on, on whatever platform you use to communicate with us. Uh, if it's email or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever it, whatever it is, Discord, 
let us know. Uh, we thought it was a fantastic chat, and uh, we hope you guys enjoyed it too. Moving on now, though, we're going to move to what Josh considered the most essential track of the of the record in our lyric of the week. Yep, lyric of the week this week, obviously, comes from Gigaton, and it's Dance of the Clairvoyance. All right, Paul. So the uh, opening verse of the Answer to the Clairvoyance for a single from Gigaton a little over three years ago, it debuted. What do you make of this? Uh, you know, when I first heard these lyrics, I think that I was so taken with the sound that it took me a while to access, you know, what Eddie was singing about here. Mm-hmm. Um, th- these lines here. Uh, imperceptibly big, big as the ocean and equally hard to control. So save your predictions and burn your assumptions. Love is friction, ripe for comfort, endless equations, tugging persuasions, doors open up to interpretation. (laughs) um, it, It just captures so beautifully the complicated nature of intimacy and the space between people that somehow manages to push and pull us to that there's an attraction and there is also this this uh space that can never truly be bridged between two people and i think what's unique about this particular set of lyrics is that line love is friction Mm. a lot of times people say that love is something that you should come easy if it's the right person you know, it's not supposed to require work. And uh, I've come to find that in some ways, love is very much friction. It's sometimes it's it's friction between one person and him or herself. It's friction between two people. It's friction between a person and his or her environment or upbringing or family or, you know, circumstances, location, you know, up, uh, c- cultural background. There, there's so many elements that go into what makes two people compatible and this idea that the absence of friction is a sign of of true love i think is i don't know i mean it's, it's i don't want to think it's a loss that, of control if you don't have any friction you're just floating in space think of that comatose line yes you can't control well anything you're just floating there you are exactly um and honestly with friction comes energy right mm-hmm. that's how you generate heat so it's you, you oh yeah, ball game right? down yeah. there. Here we go. <laughs> you, you you need to have a little bit of that because it you know iron sharpens iron, so to speak. But that, yeah. that doesn't mean that you want to be with somebody who's constantly challenging you in all the wrong ways. So I think that um, that's and a lot of that friction is is encapsulated in the the ending of the song, in terms of of you know how these 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 two genders are so uniquely different in what is driving the, the, the basest um, inclinations of each. And so these lines here at the outset, though, <laughs> I think paint a portrait of 
what we should aspire to, but the struggle that is inherently part of that aspiration and how it's not an easy road, you know? Yeah. I like that you, and it is a dance, right? It's a dance back and forth. I I like that you focused in on, on that part of this section. I went a little bit more 30,000 foot on this, but that that's certainly part of the equation. Um, I would, I would come out of that and, and float above it and say that life is hard, right? And, and, and fighting the good fight can be hard. And, and, and some people do not get, or do not want to get what it takes to allow love to guide our culture and, and not hate to, to guide the culture. Um, I'm not going to go on a tangent, but I will say that as we recorded this, as we record this right now, um, earlier today, there was hate in Nashville. And that comes to mind because we'll talk about that city later on, maybe. Um, hate ruled that that day for a little bit, and that pisses me off. But anyway, um, some would rather just assume that everything just comes together. You know, it, it, it takes strength and consciousness and diligence to make a better tomorrow. So what do they say? Re- repeating the same action and expecting different results is the definition of insanity. Well, ignoring the lessons of the past and just being ideological about the future is a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. If you want a better future, if you preach change, if you deride inequities, et cetera, et cetera, then you have to actually do something. Like voting is literally the least that you can do. But doing more, stepping up for what you believe in, because there is always someone or a group fighting for the opposite because it will financially benefit them in some way like going on tiktok and simply calling out bigotry that's fine great but where's the follow-through like are are you going to do it are are, or do you just assume someone else will take care of it you know brandon from uh better band podcast recently um put an end to his show and that sucks for this community but he often found ways to perfectly reference the simpsons when talking about the band. So this this one's for him. Remember that episode where Homer becomes the Springfield Sanitation Commissioner? Well, he ran on the slogan, can't somebody else do it in regards to picking up everyone's grab? This this is what that is. Can't someone else just do it? We'll just sit over here, dance away our, our, our problems. And that's how too many Americans are like, in my opinion. They, they want the change. They want love to conquer. But they aren't willing to fight as hard for it as they may need to. So they just sort of ignore it and assume someone else will do it. Well, I'm telling you, it's not how it works because there's always people on the other side that are going to chip, 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 chip away at what they want for their narrow-minded reasons. And if you want the fight, if you want love to be the conqueror, you got to find that friction. It's going to, or it's going to find you, right? So I, I think between the two of us, I like the micro and macro of, of what this song is, portends to be about uh, and what it's challenging the listener to uh, to do to activate, I think is a good word. Activate. Yeah. I mean, be an activist. You know, that doesn't mean you have to make signs and, you know, go stand in the rain and pick. There's many it, different it, ways. It, I'm it, just there's saying. There's many different ways. Something. You got, but you have to be active, yeah. not passive, and just dancing away your worries is ultimately not going to affect the change that you you would like to see not, not just in the world but to you in directly not just indirectly so yep. completely you said it very well 
uh, love to hear your thoughts on on Dance of the Clairvoyance, this verse, obviously, specifically. And um, we'll continue the conversation there. But for now, we're going to move on to our live cut of the week. live cut of the week i may have tipped the hand earlier paul where and when are we going for dance of the clairvoyance we are going to nashville tennessee on september 16th 
All right. So we got 27 performances of this one. The very first one was at Dana Point. No, sorry. Asbury Park, New Jersey. And the last one was in Denver, Colorado. There, I mean, there, I would say that a lot of them felt in a similar ballpark. I don't think any of them were ever downtuned, which is good. That, that was one of the problems we had with Quick Escape was trying to find one that sounded like it was in the right key. One of the things, Jason, that I found just in listening to to more and more of these was that the backing vocals was not always mm. there wasn't always enough volume on those. Um, and Mike's performances vary. There, there, mm-hmm. there are certain performances, namely this one, where his guitar is literally on fire. I mean, it, there is just a funky groove to it, and he is just really, really riding that groove. And then there are other uh, performances where I feel that I don't want to say it comes across as flat, but it just it it comes across as um, uh, very formulaic. It just kind of you know paints by numbers through yeah through the song. And um, I feel like with this one, it felt very much in the moment, and it was very free and it was vibrant. This guitar felt vibrant. His playing felt vibrant, I should say. Um, and I thought it was just very well mixed. You know, I thought the the backing vocals at the end were elevated and um they they really did a nice job layering those um i thought eddie's performance was on point the band was on point everything was timed well and and mike really just carried this one through so yeah for me the uh the first thing i was looking for is is matt i mean he's the backbone of this song and if for sure there are some instances some versions of this song that he simplifies his kick drum and on this one it felt like it was much more uh, of the studio version complexity. So I like that. And the, it, there wasn't as long of a lead up like stone came in right when he's supposed to, as opposed to letting it go another four bars, which I liked, I like kind of, kind of getting into it quicker. Um, and then, yeah, I think for the most part, everyone sounds pretty good throughout. Um, I, I liked Mike, especially to your point, but the thing that really stuck out to me uh, on top of the mat thing was the outro, the layered vocals, as you said, this one yeah. front to back when they started recycling the lyric the uh the vocals at the end with eddie and josh and, and the recording um was the best version i had heard the best version some came close but this one was the best that i'd heard so i i love this choice if you guys were in nashville for this uh let us know how you how you feel about it there there was a few others that that were pretty good um some of you all mentioned them in the, in the discord channel um they were right there but but nashville i think both for us both of us stuck out well, there you go. Episode 150. Are we going to do another 150 of these? You know, <laughs> as long as there's a band and there's music to talk about, Jason, who knows? Who knows? Well, if you've gotten this far, we really do appreciate it. Uh, anybody who's new, anybody who's been around for a while. Hey, let's pour one out for Brandon and let's get let's, let's you know get, we should keep we'll, things going strong here brandon palomo um has been uh in this community for a long time and he has put together a ton of really fun episodes and uh we thank him a lot he's been on the show i think it, it, at least once if not twice i don't, I don't yeah, recall and we, we've had the privilege of uh, joining his him show as well yeah. so um pouring out for the homie and uh we will see you uh the next time and uh until we do You've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. Peace.